0: 70. The Roman army crushes the Jewish revolt in Jerusalem. Two years later, a single rebel force remains. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, it numbers less than a thousand. Its leader is Eleazar ben Yair. Its stronghold, the fortress of Masada.
1: after the fall of Jerusalem, the Romans
2: arrive at the bottom of Masada. So the Roman troops presumably would have come from the west, which even today is the easiest way to approach Masada. Presumably the people on top of the mountain would have begun to see them from a distance because they're elevated above the rest of the area. When the Romans arrived at the foot of Masada, they set up a siege which means they built a wall completely encircling the base of the mountain to cut it off, what's called a circumvallation wall.
0: The siege wall is still visible today. Its contours, just as they were 2,000 years ago.
2: And the idea was to seal off the mountain to make sure that nobody inside the mountain could escape, nobody could get in to help them, and posted guards along the length of the wall to make sure that nobody was trying to climb over. Though the Roman forces likely outnumber the Jews 10 to 1,
0: the fortress seems impregnable. There's just one narrow pathway up the mountain, and his enemies have the advantage of higher ground. But Flavius Silva is undaunted. He calls for his engineers to design and build a massive ramp, wide enough to support a siege tower and a battering ramp. If it's to reach the top of the mountain, the ramp will need to be 375 feet tall. It takes the ceaseless energy of thousands to fulfill General Silva's audacious plan.
2: So the Romans, while they're getting these last pieces of the siege machinery into place, would have had to have provided cover fire for their men to keep the heads of the Jews down so that they can get their siege machinery up and into place.
0: Flavius Silva, the conquest of Masada is at hand.
2: So, according to Josephus, the Romans batter through Herod's fortification wall.
0: <laughs> Eleazar and the rebels seem out of options. Ah, going to
3: break the ah.
0: But there is one left that no one has foreseen.
2: This is the point when Josephus says, it's getting dark. The Roman's plan then is to, you know, make the final entry into the mountain in the morning when it becomes light. But Josephus tells us that
1: Eleazar, the leader of the group here, gathered everyone together and made an impassioned speech in which he told them that the end was near.
4: And they made the decision rather than surrender the Romans and the women being raped and sent away as slaves and the men being crucified and the children sold away into the copper mines, wouldn't it be more noble to choose death?
1: According to Josephus, they then drew lots and ten men were chosen to kill the other men and a final man killed the rest.
0: According to Josephus, the next day dawns to an eerie silence, not the sounds of war. When the Roman general Flavius Silva enters the fortress, he finds a handful of survivors and the remaining 960 rebels dead, victims of mass murder and suicide.
5: Josephus's tragic and haunting story of Masada raises complex questions about the sanctity of life the pursuit of freedom, and the lengths people are willing to go to preserve their national pride.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, today we will hear an argument in the case, The People versus the Masada Martyrs. All of you sitting here today are members of the jury. After arguments, you will vote to determine the outcome of this case. Arguing for the Prosecution Martin Pritkin, Dean of Purdue Global's Concord Law School. Arguing for the defense. Rafi Kaplan, criminal defense attorney at the Los Angeles Public Defender.
0: All rise at this time time as as the the judge judge enters enters the the courtroom.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Please be seated. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I wanna thank you for taking part in this extremely important case. As you've been told, you are the jurors. It's going to be your decision as to whether or not the defendants are found guilty or not guilty. I'm sure you will do your best, thank you. Would the prosecution like to make an opening statement? Yes, Your Honor. Whenever you're ready.
3: Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Good afternoon, members of the jury. My name is Martin Pritikin and I will prove to you that the defendant is guilty as an accomplice to up to hundreds of murders. The evidence will show that what took place at the top of that Masada fortress nearly 2,000 years ago was an ancient version of Jonestown, long before they ever invented Kool-Aid. And the defendant was its mastermind. You're gonna hear today from an expert historian, Dr. Henry Abamson, who's gonna tell us about what happened at Masada. And we know what happened because Josephus, who was a Jewish general who was captured by the Romans, imprisoned, and later freed by the emperor, he became a historian himself. And he wrote a detailed account of the wars between the Romans and the Jews, including that final battle at Masada. Now, the Romans laid a siege around Masada and built up that ramp so they could destroy that fortress wall at the top. They managed to breach the wall just before nightfall and storm it the next morning. But before they could, that night, the defendant, Eliezer Ben Yair, leader of the Jewish rebels, made a speech to his men. And he told them, rather than surrender and be captured by the Romans, it was better to die with honor as free men at their own hands. And so they drew lots at his urging as to who would kill the others and then finally take his own life. So when the Romans approached the next morning, what they saw were nearly a thousand bodies and a few survivors who happened to hide out during the killings and so managed to live to tell the tale. You'll also hear today from Rabbi Abraham Zayens, who is an expert in Talmudic law. And he will tell you that under Jewish law, which the defendant was bound to follow at the time, life is sacred and therefore it is forbidden to take your own life, let alone the lives of others, even to avoid being captured by the enemy. So the evidence will show is no doubt that the defendant is guilty as an accomplice to first-degree murder. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Would the defense like an o- to make an opening statement?
6: Yes, thank you, Your Honor.
1: You may proceed.
6: Sometimes we've heard a story so many times, we never stop to question its validity. Well, today we're going to step back at this trial and we're going to ask ourselves, to what do we base this fall of Masada on? It's based on the sole account of one man, Josephus. And you're going to hear from the expert witness also that there were no witnesses that survived the actual suicide or martyr that Josephus claims, that there's no corroborating other historians of the time who recount this story, that the archaeological evidence does not conclude that either the speech that they attribute to Eliezer ben Yair or that the suicide happened. In fact, it's just as likely, based on the archeological evidence, that the Romans made it to the top of the mountain, they found living Jews, and they either slaughtered them or took them off in captivity to Rome. Moreover, we're going to hear from Rabbi Avram Zainz, and he's going to explain to us that even if we assume the story that Josephus tells, that these God-fearing people at the top of Masada had every right to take their own lives and the lives of their family rather than be subjected to rape, subjected to servitude under the merciless Roman idolaters. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Would the prosecution please call its third witness?
3: Thank you, Your Honor. At this time, the prosecution calls Dr. Henry Abramson to the stand. you affirm that you will tell the truth, no truth, and nothing but the truth in these proceedings. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Please be seated. You may begin. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Abramson, thank you for being here. Can you please briefly describe your education and training?
5: Uh, I have a doctorate in history from the University of Toronto, and I spent uh, years in postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard, Cornell, Oxford, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem.
3: And what's your current position?
5: I am a dean of Turo University in New York. Dr. Abramson, who was Josephus? Josephus was a, a Jewish historian born in the year 37. And he spent much of his career chronicling his experience in the Roman-Jewish War that occurred between 66 and 74.
3: He was originally a Jewish general fighting the Romans, right?
5: Correct. He was assigned to the Galilee region.
3: But he was then captured by the Romans, imprisoned, but later freed?
5: Exactly. Okay.
3: Now, uh, did Josephus write about Masada? Yes. Where? It appears
5: in his book entitled The Jewish War, and there are discussions of it in later books that he wrote as well.
3: So was he only writing about Masada, or did he write about other things in those books?
5: In The Jewish War, he covers the period really from the Maccabees right up until the fall of Masada. In his Jewish Antiquities, he uh, goes all the way from Genesis up to the Jewish War.
3: So according to Josephus, who was using Masada as their base of operations in approximately the year 73?
5: A group of zealots who were opposed to the Roman Empire, and they held out after the rest of the revolt had failed. And who is their leader? Eliezer ben Yair.
3: Your Honor, may the record reflect that the witness has identified the defendant. So what did the Romans do to try and attack the fortress, in brief?
5: Well, General Silva used a tried-and-true Roman technique of uh, starving the besieged victims uh, and uh, mounted tremendous amount of energy to be able to climb uh, one of the walls of Masada with, and bring the siege ends up to uh, destroy the walls, as we saw in the film earlier.
3: And so did the Romans eventually breach the fortress walls? Yes, they did. What time of day was it?
5: It was towards the end of the afternoon.
3: And so what did the Romans do then? Uh, they waited overnight,
5: according to Josephus's account.
3: And according to that account, what did the defendant, Eliezer Ben-Yahir, say to his men that they should do?
5: He delivered a very impassioned and literate speech uh, describing the merits of suicide over capitulation to the Romans.
3: And what was
6: the reasoning that the defendant gave? Objection. I ask that to uh, be clear. That this wet witness, who is not testifying to his own personal knowledge, make it clear that he's only recording what Josephus had written in his book. No objection, Your Honor.
1: Overruled. Thank you.
3: So, according to Josephus, what was the defendant's argument why they should kill themselves.
5: Uh, He marshaled several arguments regarding the treatment that they would suffer at the hands of the Romans and also the great indignity and, in fact, the desecration of the divine name that would result were they to be captured.
3: So at first, were his men unanimously in agreement with his plan that they should all die? Uh, We are
5: unaware of their initial reaction, but ultimately, according to Josephus, they all fell into agreement.
3: Well, in fact, at first, weren't some of them reluctant, and so he made an even longer speech to try and convince the holdouts? Correct. And did he ultimately convince them? Ultimately, according to Josephus, yes. And so what exactly did they do?
5: They drew lots to divide themselves into smaller groups, men, women, and even children. And the uh, the ones who uh, lost the lottery had to murder a certain number of other captives, other rebels, until they finally took their own lives.
3: Now, uh, uh, did anyone survive from this mass murder and suicide?
5: Yes, we have a,
3: a small number of
5: women and children who were in hiding while this was taking place, again, according to Josephus.
3: And according to Josephus, uh, did he describe anything about these women, about their level of intelligence, or anything about them?
5: I am unaware of any such characterizations. Okay.
3: Um, But so, according to Josephus, word from the survivors of what happened at the top of Masada was relayed to him, and that's how he was able to relate the details of the speech. Uh,
5: Presumably. He does not uh, detail the provenance of that information, but uh, that's the implication he provides.
3: Dr. Abramson, let me ask you this. Is there any account of what happened at Masada that contradicts what Josephus wrote? No. Is there any archaeological evidence that corroborates what Josephus wrote.
5: The archeological evidence is ambiguous and can be, arguments can be marshaled for and against.
3: All right, well, let's look at some of that. Your Honor, I have in my hand what have been marked as Exhibits A and B, permission to approach the witness?
1: Yes.
5: Thank you.
3: Dr. Abramson, I've just handed you a couple of exhibits. If uh, we may have permission to publish Exhibit A for the jury? Does this appear to be a fair and accurate depiction of a bird's-eye view of Masada and its environs? Yes. Now, Joseph's account of the siege wall around Masada, that was accurate, wasn't it? Yes. His account of the ramp that was built to storm Masada, that was accurate? Correct. His account of the size and shape and layout of Masada, that was accurate according to the physical layout, right? Yes. All right. If we could turn to exhibit B, please. Dr. Abramson, what are we looking at in Exhibit B?
5: This is an ostracon. Uh, It's a piece of pottery that was uh, used for a writing surface.
3: Okay, thank you for explaining that for those who don't know what ostracon is. um, Now, was this found at the top of Masada when archaeologists later went to excavate it? Yes. And uh, what does it appear that this uh, pot shard may have been used for? Uh, well, originally it would
5: have been used as a pot, but once pottery breaks, it was common usage to uh, recycle it as writing material.
3: And so, uh, would it be possible that shards of pottery that have individuals' names on them could be used to draw lots to see who would kill the others and then sacrifice themselves? Yes. This particular pot shard that we're seeing on the screen, Exhibit B, that was found at the top of Masada, what's written on there? In Hebrew, Ben Yair. As in Eliezer Ben Yair, the defendant? As in Eliezer Ben Yair. No further questions at this time,
6: Your Honor.
1: Thank you. Cross-examination?
6: Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Professor. Good afternoon. Now, Josephus is the sole account of the mass suicide at Masada, is that correct?
5: That is correct.
6: So there are no other contemporary historians who even write about the fall of Masada. Is that correct? Yes. And Josephus himself states that he was not present at Masada when it fell. Is that correct? That is true. And Josephus does not indicate who exactly he heard the tale of the speech from. Is that correct? Yes. Nor does he indicate who exactly he heard the tale of the mass suicide from. Is that correct? Yes. What he does state is that there were some women hiding out who were not present at the suicide. Is that correct? Well, they were present at the top of the mountain, um,
5: so present in the sense that they were there with the rebels, but presumably were hiding in, in some kind of cave.
6: Right. So if they were hiding, they could not exactly see how the individuals died. Is that correct? I don't know. Okay. And they, those women were the ones who told the Roman soldiers about what occurred, is that correct? According to Josephus, yes. But we don't know how many people from the Roman soldiers relayed the story before it got to Josephus, is that correct? Correct. Okay, and isn't it true that at the time of Josephus, many historians wrote historical books not for the purpose of historical accuracy, but for the objective of telling stories and for relating moral principles? That is absolutely
5: correct, and I would argue that it's not even in Roman times alone.
6: And <laughs> for this reason, a lot of ancient historians, including Josephus, contradict each other over many important facts. Is that correct? That.
3: Vague and beyond the
6: scope. Sustained. Now Josephus himself was captured by the Romans, is that correct? Yes. And he was under Roman control at the time when he wrote this book about Masada, is that correct?
5: Well, it depends on how we understand control. He, was, uh, he would actually betrayed his cause to join the Romans voluntarily when he, his village was uh, encircled, uh, and he surrendered to them. And then he made the rest of his career Uh, literally with the uh, Flavian Empire emperors looking over his shoulder at everything he wrote. Thank you. They were
6: patrons as well as captors at the same time. But in either case, uh, certainly the Romans would have had influence over what Josephus portrayed in his book and would want him to portray things that Romans would want to read. Is that correct?
5: Yes, correct. Okay.
6: Now... Under these conditions, isn't it possible that Josephus could have fabricated the entire suicide at Masada? It is entirely possible. And in fact, many scholars believe that is the case. And Professor Abramson, doesn't Josephus state that the mass suicide occurred on the 15th of Nisan? I believe that is correct. Now, doesn't that make this entire story unbelievable, being that the Jews chose to sacrifice themselves on the 15th of Nisan, and had they done it just one day earlier, they wouldn't have to clean for Pesach? (laughs) Assume for a moment that the Romans actually made it to the top of Masada, and they found living Jews there. Based on your knowledge of the Roman army, what likely would have happened to those Jews? Well, uh, particular circumstances of Masada, if they followed earlier patterns, there
5: would have been a bloodbath, um, and then once uh, the, the anger of the Romans, who had been subjected to a long siege, because it's very hard on the besiegers as as, as well as it is for the people who are under siege, um, then they would have taken whatever survivors and sold them off into captivity or to the gladiatorial games. Um, uh, many of them would have uh, been sent off to Rome. Uh, Josephus estimates as many as a hundred thousand rebels were sent to Italy as
6: slaves. Now, is it likely that the Romans would have raped? They're captives? Yes. And does that include the men? Yes. And when under the captivity of Rome, uh, would they have been subjected to idolatry? There
5: are uh, a range of answers possible. It's a rather complex question. The Jews did enjoy a limited exemption from mandatory idolatrous practices. Uh, but slaves did not. So it is quite likely that they would have been required to
6: perform various idolatrous acts. Let me ask you three brief questions about the uh, archeological evidence. Number one, um, the pot shards, there were many pot shards with names on them found at the top of Masada, is that correct? That is correct. And many of them were identified as meal ration tickets by archeologists, isn't that correct? To a certain degree, it's supposition,
5: but basically it's uh, a bunch of pieces of paper with names on them. And we don't know what precisely they were used for.
6: Now, did the archaeologists find a mass grave of 960 bodies at the top of Masada? No, they did not. How many bodies did they find, Professor? Three. Thank you. No further questions.
1: Any redirect?
3: Yes, briefly, Your Honor. Dr. Abramson, does the lack of finding 960 bodies at Masada necessarily undercut Josephus's account?
5: Uh, no, it does not. Why not? Uh, well, Masada was occupied for several hundred years afterwards uh, by several groups, and it, it stands to reason that they would have cleared away the bodies. The Romans have, themselves may have cleared away the bodies uh, for you know, cremation or mass burial elsewhere that has not yet been discovered.
3: Now, speaking of the Romans, um, if the Romans had captured nearly a thousand rebels, the last fighters in Judea to resist, based on what you know about the Romans, isn't that something they might want to publicize? Yes. Right. In fact, uh, didn't they mint coins saying Judea Capta," Jews captive, to celebrate their victory over the Jews?
5: Yes, they did.
3: Right? And if Josephus had downplayed that victory of theirs, might that have caused him to lose favor with his Roman overseers?
5: Well, it's quite possible, but you could also argue the opposite because they had already celebrated their triumph over Judea a couple years earlier. And so if they're still fighting in Judea, it it would have made their earlier
3: triumph look premature. Right. Although, carting a thousand Jewish captives into Rome would certainly be a feather in their cap. Yes. Um, Now, as to what these men knew or didn't know, they didn't know for sure that they would be forced to serve idols if they were captured by the Romans, did they?
5: They didn't know for sure, but it would be likely.
3: They didn't know for sure if they or their wives would be raped.
5: Once again, they probably would have assumed
3: that. And as we saw, Joseph himself, he was captured, correct? Correct, or surrendered. As far as we know, he wasn't forced to serve idols, was he? Uh, Correct. He wasn't raped, was he? Not that we know of. He had had three bad marriages, though. All right, well, (laughs) I'll I'll leave that for the jury. Um, And he, in fact, was imprisoned and then released, right? Correct. You could argue things turned out pretty okay for him after surrendering.
5: Uh, It seems he was very happy with the post-war settlements he received, yes. No further
3: questions at this time, Your Honor.
1: Thank you. Professor, thank you for coming today and you're excused. Thank you, Your Honor. Prosecution can call its next witness.
3: Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. At this time, the prosecution calls Rabbi Avraham Zayens.
1: Do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in these proceedings? I do. Thank you, sir.
3: Please be seated. Good afternoon, Rabbi Zayens. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Could you please briefly describe your education and training in Talmudic law?
4: I was initiated to Talmud when I was nine.
3: So just last week? <laughs> there you
4: go. All
3: right, sorry, please continue.
4: i still going. I went to yeshiva, I got smicha, and I teach the Talmud.
3: Okay. And uh, do you lead a congregation?
4: We have a beautiful congregation, yes.
3: So do you feel qualified to talk about Talmudic law and what it provides?
4: To a certain degree, yes.
3: Okay. I appreciate the humility. Um, So tell us, as a general rule. I'm sorry?
6: Defense would stipulate to his expertise.
1: Thank you.
3: Thank you. So as a general rule, Rabbi, is suicide permitted under Jewish law? No. Why not?
4: Because God commanded us not to take life, and that includes taking one's own life. Murder and suicide is synonymous.
3: So you've basically answered my next question, but is murder permitted under Jewish law? Okay. Well, what if someone's likely going to die anyway? Can you murder them then?
4: God forbid. Absolutely not.
3: What if someone is afraid of the suffering they'll endure if they don't die? Can you kill them then?
4: God forbid. But just to add a little nuance that if a person is suffering and there's a certain medical treatment that one would like to abstain from, that is a very hot topic. But taking one's life to prevent suffering is something that is prohibited by Jewish law.
3: Understood. Um, Now, let me turn briefly to Josephus. Uh, Are you familiar with who Josephus is? Yes. Is Josephus' historical account ever relied upon as authoritative by any of the Jewish sages in the Talmudic or other classic Jewish texts?
4: Yes, he's quoted a few times.
3: No further questions at this time, Your Honor.
6: Thank you.
1: Cross-examination.
6: Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Rabbi Zeitz. Are there any exceptions to the prohibition against suicide? Yes, there are. Can you lay out for us what those exceptions are? Well, let's begin with quoting a Talmudic passage in Gitin, page
4: 57b, very much connected to the events surrounding Matzada when the Romans were taking Jewish captives to be sold in Rome as uh, sex slaves. And the Talmud records the tragic event where 400 of these youngsters, becoming aware of their destiny, decided to take their lives. And that would be a halachic justification to take one's life.
6: Does the Talmud indicate whether uh, these 400 children had a share in the world to come. Well, absolutely. that's,
4: That's the message of the Talmud. Let me just take a little step back that there are three sins for which a Jew actually should give one's life, and doing so is considered to be the greatest act of sanctifying God's name. And that will be one should never murder, one should never commit adultery, and one should never serve idols. And as one is being uh, commended to giving up one's life, not to violate any one of those three, if a person feels that any one of those three will be forced upon him or her, equally,
6: they will be allowed to take their own life. And is it your understanding of that Talmudic story of the 400 children who threw themselves in the sea after being taken captive by the Romans, that the reason that they did that was to avoid being raped? Absolutely, that's clearly the reason. And does it also include that the reason that they did that was to avoid being subject to idolatry? The Talmud does not make any mention of that over there. But we do have other sources where that would have been the reason. Is it also the case that the Tanakh discusses Shaul HaMelech and his passing?
4: Shaul HaMelech actually requested from his arm bearer to take his life. He requested for someone else to kill him. That person did not acquiesce and Shaul HaMelech took his
6: own life on the battlefield. And is it your understanding that the justification that Shaul HaMelech had for taking his own life was based on this exception? that he didn't want to be subject to one of the three cardinal sins of either sexual impropriety, idolatry, or f- being forced to kill somebody? Well, I do not recall anyone speaking about his
4: concern of him being forced to kill someone, but there is a, there is a discussion regarding Shaul HaMelech, and uh, the majority opinion would be that what he did was okay. Why did he do it? I mean, you can read the scripture. One of the words that he used was that perhaps... That will be a key word here. Penn, perhaps they would rape him. He was afraid of him being raped.
3: Thank you. Rabbi
1: Thank you. Any redirect?
3: Yes, Your Honor. So Rabbi zines the uh, exceptions to the prohibition on suicide in Jewish law, they're narrow, correct? Correct.
4: Right. It's connected to the three that I mentioned.
3: Right. And in fact, uh, one of the rare instances where someone can commit suicide is if they that would lead them to avoid committing murder.
4: That is correct.
3: Now, those 400 children, they knew they'd been sold as sex slaves, correct? That's correct. They knew that was the purpose of their captivity. Correct. And Shaul HaMelech, uh, there are some opinions that actually disapprove of what he did, correct? Because he himself said, pen, he, it wasn't a certainty.
4: That is where you have the question. Right. How certain must you be?
3: And in fact, isn't there a view that he thought that if he was taken captive since he was the king, some of his uh, people would actually try and attack to free him, and they might be killed? Correct. So in fact, he was worried about saving lives, trying to save life by taking his own life.
4: There are such opinions, correct.
3: One more question, Rabbi Zions: Does Jewish law permit killing oneself in lieu of serving a foreign ruler? No. No further questions.
1: Thank you. you Anything want to raise else the from? Excuse? Yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Would the prosecution like to make a closing?
3: Your Honor, the prosecution rests. May we? Yes. See the closing. Yes, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Members of the jury, thank you for your time and attention today. Paraphrase Johnny Cochran. If it doesn't conflict, you must convict. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that despite the doubts the defense has tried to raise, as to Joseph's credibility, the fact remains that there is no historical account of what occurred in Masada that conflicts with his account of the mass murder and suicide that was instigated by the defendant, Eliezer Ben-Yahir. Yair. is simply no conflict as to that evidence. And if it doesn't conflict, you must convict. Now even the doubts the defense has tried to raise, they're not reasonable doubts. The prosecution doesn't need to prove their case beyond all doubt. Nothing in life is 100% certain. And uh, there are no reasonable doubts as to the accuracy of Josephus' account of what occurred. His description of the layout of Masada and the Roman siege was spot on. There is archeological evidence corroborating his version of events, including not only multiple pot shards that very well could have been used for the men to draw lots to decide who would kill the others and then take his own life, but even one that had the name Ben Yair on it. Now granted, only three bodies were found thousands of years later, but that doesn't mean Josephus was wrong. As Dr. Abramson explained, others moved into there. And they're not going to want to have nearly a thousand corpses just lying around. Even today, there's no air freshener that could take care of that. So, of course, they would have removed the bodies. That doesn't raise any reasonable doubt as to what occurred. And by the way, even if Elias Ben-Yahir had only incited three murders, or even one murder, he'd still be guilty. Now, granted, Josephus did have the Romans looking over his shoulder at the time. But if anything, that just proves the prosecution's point. The Romans would've wanted to celebrate bringing Jews captive, bringing them back, right? Fabricating a mass suicide of 1,000 people, that's just not something you do. I mean, talk about fake news. He didn't have an incentive to do it. The Romans would've potentially been angry at him for downplaying their victory and making their opponents look more noble than they actually were. So there is no reasonable doubt as to whether Josephus made this up. You know, this wasn't the time of CSI, right? There's no DNA evidence. You're not going to have multiple witness accounts from thousands of years later, right? There are plenty of crimes where the jury convicts based on the testimony of one witness. And this is a pretty credible witness that's trusted even by Jewish sources. So we know beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant egged his men on and convinced them to kill their families, themselves, each other. And we know this because there were survivors. And Josephus there were survivors, including adults who could have relayed exactly what happened. And we know the defendant had no legal excuse for doing what he did, for egging his men on to kill. As we heard, murder and suicide are both forbidden under Jewish law. The only exceptions, the prohibitions on taking human life are narrow and they do not apply here. The defendant and his men didn't know that they would be forced to serve idols if they surrendered. Josephus himself surrendered and as we saw, turned out pretty good for him. He wasn't forced to serve idols. These men didn't know that they or their wives would be violated. They didn't know that their children would be forced to serve idols. And more importantly, avoiding idolatry these other sins wasn't really the reason why Eliezer ben Ya'ir said his men should take their lives. He said they should die with honor as free men rather than surrender and be captured by the, by the Romans. Better to kill themselves and each other rather than risk that degradation. Now, we may sympathize with them, and God forbid any of us should find ourselves in a similar situation. We may even admire their courage... But the fact remains that there is no valid excuse for what they did under Jewish law. And that's why the defendant is charged as an accomplice to murder. Let me explain accomplice for a minute. As her honor will instruct you, when someone acts as an accomplice, that is they intentionally encourage or advise the commission of a crime, then they are held responsible for the crime as if they committed it with their own hand. The notorious Charles Manson was never actually found to have killed anyone himself, but he was found guilty of murder nonetheless because he convinced his followers to commit those heinous acts. Now, the Manson family was only found guilty of killing nine people. Here the defendant was responsible for over 900 deaths. It makes Charlie Manson look like Tom Sawyer convincing someone to whitewash his fence. That level of violence makes O.J. Simpson look like the Dalai Lama, I mean, if he had done it, of course. Now, specifically, he's charged with being an accomplice to first-degree murder. And first-degree murder is murder that's done with premeditation and deliberation. And we know here that the men killed with premeditation and deliberation because they did so in response to rational and lengthy arguments that the defendant made. Some were reluctant at first, and obviously they they were distraught, but his persuasive words overcame their natural inclination to preserve life. His words made all the difference. Josephus tells us so. And there is no conflict in that evidence. And if it doesn't conflict, you must convict. Find the defendant guilty of accomplice to first-degree murder. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Closing by the uh, defense.
6: Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Before we convict my client Eliezer Ben-Yair, of incitement we have to be certain that we know exactly what words he said so that we can analyze them before we can convict him we have to be certain that a suicide the massacre as he described even happened and when I say certain I mean certain beyond a reasonable doubt the highest standard in any court of law in this land there's many standards the first one you'd come to is probable cause that allows the police to go into your home, search your home, search your internal bodily cavities. Then you come to preponderance of evidence, what's used in civil cases. Then you come to clear and convincing, which is used to take children away from their parents or to disconnect life support. But the highest standard in any court of law is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's all the way over here. And that's what the people have to show, that we know beyond a reasonable doubt I mean, what Eliezer Ben-Yair spoke and what occurred up there on the top of Masada. And we don't know that because Josephus is the only person to record this. There is no other contemporaneous historians who even write about it. That we don't know who Josephus heard it from. That the only witnesses to have possibly been there were hiding at the time and they didn't Josephus does not state that they conveyed it to him. And moreover, historians of that period were not writing for objective historical accuracy. They were writing to tell a story, make it entertaining, which Masada has certainly become. Now, based on the fact that we're relying just on this one witness, this story of Masada is more like, as Bob Dylan would say, a mattress balancing on a bottle of wine than a platform which to start casting stones at the innocent martyrs of Masada and my client Eliezer Ben Yair. The archeological evidence doesn't help them either, it neither confirms that even a suicide or a killing of families even occurred. And as we've said, even if we were to assume that it happened, as Josephus states, there is An exception. There's an exception in the law against suicide that allows it when you're either going to be forced to commit sexual impropriety or idolatry. And historically, and maybe even today, it is a tool of war, it is the rule of war that warriors rape the men, women, and children. In Roman times, And it wasn't just out of uh, a victory, it wasn't out of uh, a a desire, it wasn't out of stress, stress relief management. This was a way of subjugating, dominating, emasculating the people that they had conquered and making sure that they did not rise up and they felt completely defiled and humiliated. And that was the way of war. And as we saw, the people of Masada waited till the very last moment But at that moment, they made a choice, as justified by the Talmud, to make the decision, according to Josephus, to take their own lives. Now, these were people who the archaeology shows were Torah-observant people. They found mikvahs at the top of Masada. They found uh, artifacts showing that they kept the laws of purity and impurity by the vessels that they had. They certainly would have kept the rule of law against murder and against suicide. For these reasons, I ask that you find my client, Eliezer Ben-Yair, not guilty of inciting the people at the top of Masana and not guilty of inciting them, certainly, to first-degree murder. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Members of the jury, it is now time for you to vote. Take out your cell phones and open up your text messaging app. Before you vote, I will instruct you about the law you must follow. The defendant has been charged as an accomplice to first degree murder. This applies to anyone who encourages or incites another to illegally kill a person, even if the defendant only used words to incite the killing without taking any action. If you find beyond a reasonable doubt that Eleazar Ben Yair encouraged others to kill illegally and at least one of these killings took place and that these killings were not permissible under Jewish law, which was the prevailing law at that time and place, then you must find the defendant guilty. If, however, you have some reasonable doubt about any of the three things that I just told you, you must find the defendant not guilty. You must make your decision based only on the evidence that you saw and heard here in court. Do not let your prior assumptions or anything else that you may have seen or heard outside of court influence your decision in any way. Please vote now, you have one minute to cast your vote. 20 guilty, 160 not guilty. The defendant is found not guilty. Thank you ladies and gentlemen of the jury. You are dismissed with the thanks of the court.
4: Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.